diversity and inclusion in space and science. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA and other space and science agencies are striving to diversify their workforces, but there's still a long way to go. As the country grapples with racial inequality, so do these organizations. Are We There Yet's Nelly Ontiveros speaks with NASA scientist Geronimo Villanueva during Hispanic Heritage Month to talk about efforts to get a more diverse group of STEM students and professionals and what the future core of deep space explorers might look like. Then, when talking about future exploration ambitions, language matters. The Atlantic's Marina Corrin writes about the language of space policy leaders and how it shapes the direction of programs and the perception of space exploration. We'll talk with Corrin about her latest piece, which examines the Trump administration's language of manifest destiny and its effect on space policy. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? As a kid, NASA scientist Geronimo Villanueva loved space, science, and computers. So in my case, I always liked as a kid uh, technology. I loved you know, building robots as a kid. I played with computers. And I did, um, when, I was in, when I finished high school, I started college, I was doing uh, engineering. And my, my goal at the time was to become the Bill Gates of Argentina. That was my, my big thing. But he also had another goal, to work for NASA. His career took him from Argentina to Germany and finally to NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, where he specializes in the search for organic molecules on Mars and on icy bodies. During Hispanic Heritage Month, Are We There Yet's Nelly Ontiveros spoke with Villanueva about his journey and the efforts to get more diverse students involved in STEM programs. I want to point out that in another interview, you mentioned that when you were in Argentina, NASA seemed kind of unreachable at some point. It seemed something very far away. And I want to ask you, why is that? If you... If you had been interested in engineering and, and space, why NASA seems so far away from you? The thing is, I think it happens to all of us. So <clears throat> imagine I'm, I'm, I'm a student in Argentina in high school. Uh, I'm thinking about NASA. It's impossible. I mean, first of all, you, there are two things that make everything impossible. First of all, you think that people that work at NASA are only geniuses and you're not going to be a genius. Then you realize when you work at NASA that everybody's normal like you. And then, okay, well, so... But that's the first barrier. We self-put a limit, which is the worst thing that we can always do. So first, once we remove our self-limit, you say, well, I just need to find a way to enter into the institution. That's the ne next thing. And then that is also a challenge because, you know, where do you apply? Who do you talk to? You don't know how, to, how this works. I mean, what background do you need? Uh, do I need a PhD or do I need to have a master's? Uh, what is my, when I, what all those barriers? And and now that I'm inside, of course, I know how it works and I can tell, oh, you go to this website and click here, press submit, and then you will talk to Johnny and Johnny will tell you and, and you understand how the machinery works. And being so far physically, geographically <clears throat> makes everything even more complicated. So I think the, the, the thing to communicate is that we don't, have, we don't have to think about those barriers. I mean, we have to pursue, of course, you know, it's a competition process and they have to be a, a you know, a, a system. But in, in reality, it's not that complicated. If you have a passion for space, you don't have to have a PhD in physics. You can be a graphical designer. So, I mean, you can do, NASA is a big institution. We, we require knowledge from many, many areas. So it's important that people understand that the, those 
preconceptions of what we think NASA is is not so not so real. When you went on your first day, do you recall what it looked like in terms of diversity? Do you remember finding people of your same background, other Hispanic scientists in there? Yeah, so that's one. I mean, one of the things that I'm, so as every big institution, the the I would say the research element of the, of the the research branch of any institution they tend to be more diverse because pretty much they collect a lot of uh, people from all around the world. The same happened in Germany. The the more the the one that you know the technology, the more the the engineering stuff there tend to be more Germans, and the research is very diverse. And the same happened when I came to Goddard. The, a lot of the, the you know the development uh, and technology were more American, but the research our you know which is big core of NASA is very diverse. There were people from everywhere, actually from everywhere, and there's a lot of people who actually spend they are transient. You know they they finish a PhD, they spend five years at, at NASA, and then they go to other places or they come later. So it's uh, it's very diverse in that sense. I mean I think we can do better in diversity. It's always a challenge. You know it's a big big government institution. Uh, all those historical biases are there, but I think uh, Goddard has an attitude to change that, and I think there are a lot of um, internal, you know, awareness of these things. And I think always being very integrated. I think all of us uh, from everywhere, uh, from all our our diversity, we feel very uh, integrated into the NASA machinery. And you mentioned that we can do better. And so you said that you've been working at the center for more than 15 years, right? So have you seen a change, let's say, in, in inclusion and the, te- the type of people that come into work since the moment you started until now? I, I've, seen, I've seen improvements. They are slow. You know, they are, you know, it's not, you know, you're going to see a dramatic thing, but you see it's an improvement. And I mean, one of the things that I've been doing, you know, as in all of us are trying to do, I mean, um, is to, um, especially we, what we see tend to be, we lack the pool of people to come to NASA. So by some reason, STEM has been always a, a very, a STEM, which is math and science and technology, has always been a thing that is a very uh, scary to people. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, what, what we try to do as you know, scientists, also as communicators, is to try to break that uh, stigma of STEM that is not complicated, that it's something that you can learn to love if you learn it in the right way, things like that. And I think the more we increase that element, that barrier path, and make it more diverse, the more we, we make a bigger pool of people that can come to NASA. So I think there's historical biases that are there because of those things. So a lot of people, and I see that, and I see it you know, proactively, a lot of people at Goddard, we do that. We, we try to engage the younger uh, generations of the, the US and everywhere to uh, not be so scared about STEM and learn the, the, the value of it because as we do that, we increase the pool and we can uh, improve diversity very naturally. And now that we talk about diversity, I want to touch on the topic that we are currently working on sending humans to Mars at some point. And of course, that crew that's going to go there will be a representation of humanity. So do you think that diversity will play a role on what that crew will look like? Or what do you think... Um, that crew is going to look like who's going to be there yeah that, that's a great question Eddie. so I, I think i think the good thing about uh, i mean space and astronauts is that i think they embody is an uh, aspiration element of humanity in some sense and, I, and that's one of the things i also like about nasa because it has that sense of humanity and endeavor it breaks uh, national barriers you know so you can see nasa 
being a, an inspirational element for people not American. It means that it's something about humanity. So thinking about that, I think the, the idea of the astronaut as a symbol of humanity has to be as diverse as possible. And there has been a lot of push now. I think the more awareness of our intrinsic biases to try to break those uh, things and make sure that the crew is diverse enough. And I think one of the things that it captures that, I think, which, which I find it very valuable. So, you know, we are we're working now in NASA, a mission called uh, Going Back to the Moon with Astronauts by 2024. And the mission is called Artemis. And Artemis is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a goddess uh, and of Apollo. So the idea is that and the first astronaut in 2024 is going to be a female. And, and, you know, to land on that time. So, you know, we already, those, the, the, those small things are very important for our perception of humanity to break these historical uh, things. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, thinking about it and I'm, I'm hopeful that we're gonna, we, we're gonna, we're gonna pursue to make that, rep that crew to be as diverse, as representative of humanity as possible. To the topic of uh, diversity in STEM fields and not only NASA, but in the scientific community as a whole, um, we see that Hispanics are underrepresented, and you've mentioned that's maybe because some people are scared of going into the field. But what do you think we can do to foster that inclusion and to do better, not, not only in, in NASA as an institution, but in general, in the STEM field, scientific community? So I think the, the two things that I found to be, have been very effective, and it has been effective for me too, is to have role models that look like you. And, and I found that, you know, I do have to say this. I remember when I was in Argentina. So I, I was like 17 or something or 16. So um, a guy, some guy from Mendoza, which is my province, and he gave a talk in a university there. And he was working on Intel. But for me, it was like, ooh, Intel. And it's, I mean, you know, it's Intel. It's a big company. So he gave a talk in the, in the university and we, all, we was a high school student. And, I was, and then I, he gave a talk and he looked like me uh, he was from the same province and, you know, he didn't look like an alien or something. And he was working on Intel. So I was thinking, if he can do it, I could also do it. Why, why not? What, you know, what is, I couldn't see the barrier in that moment. And then when you do that, it's a magic click in your mind that you say, oh, maybe I can work for Intel. And, and I think, so, you know, reference, those small things are having people that look like you or talk like you or things like that are super important to breaking those barriers. So I think that's a, the first important thing. And the other one is, of course, um, engage students at an early age into, into, into those fields. And I know it's challenging because, you know, sometimes, you know, poverty leads to lack of diversity. You know, when you don't have a lot of resources, those things appear to be difficult. But I'm, I think some of the technology things that we have right now make this, some of these things more accessible. So... Uh, a lot of the people that I know, we work a lot in trying to communicate to more, uh, you know, underrepresented and more impoverished people. So we make sure that everybody feels that they can be participant of this. And I think if we address those two things, we can address a big chunk of the, our issues, I think. And targeting a population that's underrepresented and doesn't have the same access to uh, the resources that other people do have access to uh, is something that you are connected to. Um, I've seen that you have contributed to education-focused philanthropies. 
um, including uh, Shakira's Barefoot Foundation and the Reducing the Digital Divide in Argentina project. And so um, why do you decide to be part of these projects and what do you hope that these kids learn in Latin America and other areas that are less fortunate? Yeah, so I think uh, it's uh, the idea of trying to make them feel closer to this. I mean, you give, you give them a face to this and it also sparked the, the curiosity. You know, sometimes you tell them something that, I don't know, the origin of the universe or, you know, how rockets fly or something like that. And you, you may, um, and, and I, I'm not saying that everybody has to do STEM. We need, we need people who we know all the stuff and things. But if you have a class of 100 and you spark the, that curiosity in five of them, that is enough to, you know, that you don't, you don't need more than that effectively. So I'm saying that um, it's, it's, it's not that difficult to do, but of course it requires a lot of resources. Lastly, if you could give any advice to your younger self, right? We're talking about the curious kid living in Argentina, looking up to the sky, wondering about the universe, young Jeronimo, what would it be? The, the, I think I will summarize it that way. We, we put our own barriers. So don't put our own barriers. We, you know, if you have a specific dream or anything, it's going to be tough. You know, you may fail a couple of times, but definitely pursue it. Even though it sounds very, you know, naive or like a movie thing, but it's true. I mean, the, we are the ones who define our boundaries and we, we definitely need to be that. I do remember when I was, when I was a when I was a kid and I was working building my robots and stuff and I was you know obsessing my things and then an uncle of mine came to me and say um, if you keep not concentrating too much in you know academia and stuff you're gonna fail like everybody you should you know you you're gonna be a failure if you keep doing this you know that spending time building robots and stuff and it was very sad for me because I was always scared that I'm gonna fail you know that I'm gonna be because I was not doing it, something that he thought it was an important thing. And don't do that. Uh, moral of the story, if you have a passion, whatever the passion is, go for it. And I was lucky that my parents were very embracive of allowing me to believe in my passion. So I think the best thing you can do is follow your passion. Don't worry about your current limitations. And look for also people like reference points. There's a lot of people who care about you who are close to you, like, you know, your teacher, your professor, they are definitely want you to grow. And, and those people are good points to make you grow. And again, even though we don't dismiss them, they are the most important link in your growth as a person. That was Are We There Yet's Nelly Ontiveros speaking with NASA scientist Geronimo Villanueva. Still to come, the rhetoric of space exploration and the implications for policy and perception. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. When talking about future exploration ambitions, language matters. The Atlantic's Marina Corin explores how the language of space policy leaders has shaped the direction of programs and the perception of space exploration. Corin joins us now to talk about her latest piece, which examines the Trump administration's language of manifest destiny and its effects on space policy. Marina Corin, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the piece is called No One Should Colonize Space. Um, what was the inspiration behind this? <laughs> uh, well, I, I should note for your listeners that uh, in No One Should Colonize Space, colonize is in quotation marks um, because this is uh, a piece about language and the way that we talk about space um, and particularly the way that we're, we've been talking about space this year. Um, 
President Trump, uh, you know, I started thinking about this piece earlier this year when President Trump gave the State of the Union address in February. Uh, the country's space program always gets a big shout out in these types of speeches. So it was no surprise that the president, you know, decided to wax poetic about what NASA is doing and what's to come. But he went a little bit further than other presidents. He he talked about, you know, America needing to embrace the next frontier, but he also talked about pursuing America's manifest destiny in the stars. Um, and I think to modern ears, when we hear manifest destiny, we think of this bolded term in a history textbook describing an extremely painful chapter in America's history. Um, and so that, that was a little bit shocking. And you know, every president in the country has always talked about space as the next frontier. And obviously so many sci-fi shows and books have too. But when you talk about manifest destiny, you lean even further into language that is associated with a really dark chapter in the country that's often neglected, and that could have um, pretty significant consequences. As you mentioned, the, the language that this administration uses to describe space exploration is vastly different than than other administrations, right? It, it's not too different. Uh, f- for example, you know, presidents, many presidents since Kennedy have talked about uh, space exploration and sending astronauts to space in in the context of conquests and exploring new worlds and sending astronauts to be pioneers and uncharted territory. These are all terms that are associated with um, you know westward expansionism in the 1800s that saw the deaths and murders of of countless indigenous people in the country. Um, so it's not new that American presidents talk this way, but I have not come across a previous American president going with Manifest Destiny, capital M, capital D. And in some ways, that is not so surprising that this administration is doing it because uh, Trump has um, a significant record of of bigotry and uh, close associations with white supremacists. And Manifest Destiny is an ideology that is very clearly aligned with that, you know, it is premised on racist beliefs, premised on the idea that um, white Americans were ordained by God to spread their will across the continent. And so in in some obvious ways, it's not surprising that this administration would lean on this language. But in terms of American spaceflight history, these words do come up and they have come up across the years. Mm-hmm. And and I mean words matter, right? I mean in in your in your reporting, you talk about how there was kind of a, a shift in the way NASA talked about space in a way to build inclusivity and promote diversity in the astronaut corps, right? Can you kind of talk a little bit about that chapter in spaceflight and how language played such a strong role in that? Well, so the the way that leaders in NASA and in the White House talk about space, it, it kind of serves as a recruitment tool. You know, when when Kennedy gave the speech, big speech about going to the moon, that was kind of like a giant LinkedIn job posting. If LinkedIn was around in the, if it were around in the time, it was, <laughs> you know, the president saying, we need the best people in this country to come together and be engineers and technicians and achieve this really great thing. Um, so the way that leaders talk about this, you know, a grand effort in space really matters to the people that you end up including in that effort, to the people who want to be in that effort. So, for example, at NASA um, back in the day, um, he, when people went to space, that that effort was called manned space flight because 
you know, it was an accurate term in the 1960s, only men in America went to space. Um, but over the years, as NASA really diversified its astronaut corps and more and more women flew to space, that language began to change. And as of 2006, uh, NASA has formally you know, recognized manned spaceflight as an outdated term. And the agency wants everyone to avoid using that and say human spaceflight and crewed spaceflight instead, because you know, they understand, like a good uh, majority of the country, that language, that you know, codes a specific way, if it's geared toward men, it's going to exclude women. And the same goes for language that codes white is going to exclude people of color. And it's going to exclude um, really talented people from joining in this effort that is supposed to be for everybody. And you haven't seen the same pushback of using terms like manifest destiny and colonizing space from NASA as you've seen the same pushback between, you know, manned, right? There, there doesn't seem to be that happening in this particular instance. Right. I haven't seen that. Uh, when I asked NASA um, headquarters last year about, because it last year was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, and I saw so many headlines, you know, saying manned moon mission. And so I went to NASA and asked, hey, what do you think about this? And they were pretty they were pretty annoyed. You know, they want everyone to to adopt the new language, human spaceflight, crude spaceflight. But when I asked them what they thought about the president's use of manifest destiny in particular, they sidestepped that question. Um, and I think they did so. I mean, there's one obvious reason that they decided not to tackle it the way that they tackled man. And that's because... Um, you know, the president is their boss. <laughs> uh, you can't exactly, it's hard to go against the president's words when you are a federal government agency. Um, but I think that also sends a message to people who are paying attention to this. You know, NASA is willing to uh, make an effort to be very inclusive of female astronauts. But what does this mean for potentially, you know, future people of color who want to be astronauts too? In the piece, you reached out to Leland Melvin, um, who's a retired astronaut. He's also black. Um, what did he say about language? What are what are his thoughts on, on the piece? Yeah, Leland Melvin feels very strongly that language matters, and he has seen how it matters um, because he – he often tells the story of talking to a room of, of young students and asking them, how many of you want to be astronauts? And one time he did that and only the young boys raised their hands. And when he asked the girls, well, why didn't you, why didn't you raise your hands? The girls said that they thought that spaceflight was for boys only. And um, that was in part because of the language that NASA and others used for so many years, calling it manned spaceflight. Um, you know, it's, Neil Armstrong said it's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. But Leland told me that he now makes the efforts to say for humans, for humankind, because he knows that language matters. Um, and he thinks that it matters, you know, beyond beyond gender and goes further than that. And he would want us to take a, a broader view of things. You know, when when you're in space and I'm, I'm talking from Leland's perspective, because I've never been to space. um, you know, Earth is just this beautiful borderless marble and you don't see the divisions that we see down here. And so um, he would like for people to move away from language that codes a certain way that excludes certain types of people and be more uh, inclusive and welcoming. When it comes to Mars exploration, it seems to be the term is to colonize Mars because 
nobody is there. Uh, what other words are there to use, and, and why is that still not the right rhetoric to use when talking about exploration? Right. Well, one popular argument against uh, wanting to rethink the vocabulary when it comes to spaceflight um, is what you just said. You know, there's nobody on Mars. There's nobody on Venus. Might be a couple of microbes, but you know, you're not. Um, it's it's not like you are arriving there and and taking over um, inhabitants the way that you know this country has done in the past. Um, but it's important to remember that even if there's no one on Mars. Um, the people who go to Mars are going to be making decisions there. They're going to be setting out policies. They're going to be determining what work is done and isn't done. And when we use really lofty sweeping rhetoric about how, um, you know, Americans or people are preordained to do something and it's their God-given right and, you know, it's our destiny, that leaves a lot of room for, um, you know, wrongdoing, exploitative practices. You know, it's easy to do, um, you know, it's easy to to get into exploitative work when the the mission is couched in these really grand terms. Um, and I talk to a few people who say that there's no harm in being specific. You know, we can say, let's go colonize Mars. We're going to send astronauts to colonize Mars. We could easily just say, we're going to send people to live on Mars. Um, there's no harm in being specific. And if you think there is harm in being specific, then maybe that says something about what you think about the project of going to Mars. You know, maybe you do want it to be this nationalist, important, you know, destined uh, ambition, but I don't think that's what it, it should be. Obviously, words matter, and it sounds like the solution is simple to just change them. Um, but is that the case? Uh, I mean, how do we how do we see a change in this language um, that makes this more inclusive? And, and is that even possible? I think making things simpler is a good start. Um, you know, and again, instead of saying let's send people to colonize Mars, we could easily say, let's send people to live on Mars. There's really no harm in simplifying it unless you are very um, tied to the ideas of, of destiny and, and conquering other worlds and settling people um, where they think that you sh they should be. Um, yeah, I think there's no harm in, in rethinking the vocabulary. I think there's harm in sticking to it, you know, especially especially this year in 2020, um, I think the entire country is facing a, facing a reckoning um, when it comes to systemic racism um, and other you know, marginalized groups and the way that people in this country treats them. And I think this is a great year to rethink these ideas in space exploration. Um, because, you know, one person I spoke with told me that, you know, if we go to space, we're still human beings. You know, nothing changes about... Um, Americans, when they go to space, they're still people and they bring their baggage along with them and their thinking and potentially flawed thinking with them. And so it's a good idea to do this work while we're still here so that the future that um, people create when they go to space is one that is open to everyone. We've been speaking with Marina Corrin. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic. You can check out her latest piece on language and all of her other space reporting at theatlantic.com. Uh, Marina, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for this week, but we have a new way to interact with the show. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram. We're at A-W-T-Y space. That same handle will also get you to our Twitter account, and you can search for Are We There Yet podcast on Facebook if that's your thing. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. 
Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.